Thanks be to God for Caleb and for that reading and for each one of you. I'm Hannah, um, and I am the pastor here at the Wicker Park site of Urban Village, and I'm so blessed to be with you today. And if you are the praying kind, I would ask you to pray with me now. God of all things, God of everything we carried with us to this place, of the morning we carried with us, of the questions we carried with us, of the joys we carried with us, of the passions we carried with us, of all in our pockets and bags and hearts and minds and souls. God, meet us here today to transform it all. Help us, God, to be all that you have made and to go forward knowing something more about you, about who we might be about who you might call us to be, about where you might be calling this community. Help us, O oh God, to know you intimately, to know your love and your joy and your hope, and most of all, your peace. And help us to be bearers of that peace in the world, but also to be those who know peace in our hearts, that the peace of us might be connected to the peace of the world and the peace of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, some of you might know this about me, that before I was here at this church, I had a former professional life doing interfaith work. I worked for a nonprofit that would bring people of different religions and no religion together, uh, mostly young people, kids, teenagers, and we would do service projects or social justice projects or community projects to try and build uh, civic relationships, to try and build peace among groups that the world said could have no peace together. And that led to a lot of uh, varied experiences for me, some better, some worse, um, but all of which I learned from. One of my favorite moments in all of that time, I was working with, uh, right here in Chicago, a Jewish private elementary school and a Muslim private elementary school where the fourth grade class of each school came together and were making placemats that had beautiful notes of love and care on them to bring to the shelter around the corner where they were gonna serve food and also give the placemats that they might continue to be messages of love and care forever. And when this event started, where we were making these placemats together, um, I had shared my story, my Muslim friend Janine had shared her story, and we had done the you know, whole, look, we can be friends, dance, and taught a little bit about interfaith stuff. And there was one kid there <laughs> who just kept kind of looking at me, like just kept sneaking me glances throughout the, throughout the activity, um, looking at me and then looking away. And I thought, well, okay, something's going on here. So I went up to her and I said, hey, uh, is there anything you want to talk about? You know, any, have any questions? And she said, yes, I don't want to ask my friends because I don't know if it's mean to, but I just don't get it. What's the deal with Santa and Jesus? Are they brothers? Are they friends? <laughs> she had clearly been carrying it inside of her for so long. What is happening here? And I said, that is such a good question. And we talked about it. Right? We went through the whole thing. Here's what some people think, here's what other people think. We're all carrying inside of us, right, these questions about one another. And this is part of both the beauty and the challenge of being human, um, is how very different we are. Another day, I was working with teenagers this time who were planning an interfaith retreat. Um, and one of them was humanist. And uh, they were planning with people of a variety of religions who were all in the room 
for a retreat where we were going to talk about our peacemaking and our justice making. How are these teenagers going to change the city that they were in? What were they going to do? And one of them said, oh, I know, we always play this song when I do, like, retreats with my friends or with this group at school. It's totally about peace. It's about all of this stuff. It's about coming together. Let's play Imagine by John Lennon. That'll set, like, just the right tone. And I could see this look on the face of one of the other kids in the room. And so we, as a community, right, brought up and we said, let's think about what, is, what are the lyrics to that song again? And in case you don't know it, we started to go over the lyrics. And the lyrics are, um, imagine there's no countries, no heaven, no religion too. Imagine all the people, right? Imagine me and you. Imagine us living in peace when there are none of these things. And we discern together um, how do we think some of the people in this room would feel if there was no religion? Would that feel like peace, right? To have a part of you be missing, <laughs> to have a part of what you believe to be the truest, most valuable thing about the world be missing, would that feel like peace? And I saw his eyes kind of widen, and he's like, whoa. And we chose another song. And that song's not bad, right? If you enjoy it, keep listening. But I, I think it speaks to a temptation that we often find, a, a risk we run when we think about peace and community and being a human <laughs> and living with other humans who keep on insisting on being different from us, which is that we are often tempted to think of peace as the time when we get rid of all of those differences, when we get rid of all of the tension and the hard stuff, that what peace will be is when things are smooth and liquid, like the top of a lake that's never been rained on, and there's nothing hard, and we're all kind of uh, nebulously the same. And I just don't think that's what peace is. <laughs> I don't think it's the kind of peace we're invited to. I think if peace doesn't involve us being fully who we are, our passions and our joys and our religions and our identities and our weirdnesses and our differences, how can there be peace? <laughs> how can it be called peace if it doesn't involve every weird, unique part of this creation? But this is the temptation we often run into, that what peace is, is to rid of, to make easy. And it's one that I think um, Herod ran into, too. Talking about Herod today, the uh, king placed over the place where Jesus lived in his time. And we're talking about Herod as a part of our series on looking at the perspectives of different people in the Christmas story. Uh, we've talked about where, what was the perspective of the angels? What did they experience? What did they know? What did they love? What did they see in this Christmas moment? Uh, the shepherds, the wise people, Joseph, Mary, right? We've taken all of these perspectives. And, and if you go anywhere that has a nativity, right, one of these places that tells the Christian story, they'll have all of those people, even though they were around at different times, different gospels tell the story of them, um, you'll see those people that I just mentioned, you'll see an angel, you'll see a Mary, you'll see a Joseph, you'll see a wise person, you'll see a shepherd, you'll see sheep, you'll see camels, you'll see all kinds of stuff. One thing I have never seen in a nativity is Herod. 
right? We, we have left Herod out of the story <laughs> um, for really good reasons, because Herod is awful and scary as hell, <laughs> right? Uh, there's a reason that we don't have little wooden Herods sitting around our Christmas story, but it means that there's a whole part of the story, I think, that we have missed out on, that we have underplayed, that we have not fully understood about what it is that God did when God came to the earth in human form as baby Jesus if we aren't taking Herod seriously. So let's consider, this is maybe the hardest mindset to put ourselves in, but what's Herod's take <laughs> on what's going on at Christmas? What can we learn from it? And I think the most important insight for me about Herod is that throughout this destruction and pain and oppression and death that he wreaks in this story, I am sure that Herod thinks of himself as a peacemaker, right? That he thinks of himself in this moment as a peacemaker. Herod was what most empires have had throughout history, which is a sort of... Um, go-between, between the colonized and the colonizer. Rome, the Roman Empire, is the empire of the time. They have stretched their influence, they have stretched their violence and their power all over continents. And in each place they go, they set up a different governor to kind of sub-govern that place in the way that Rome would want it to be governed with Rome's principles, with Rome's economic policies, with Rome's pain, with Rome's discipline, with Rome's death. And often they would pick a governor who came from Rome, who would come and show the people what they were supposed to be now that they were a part of this empire. But sometimes they would choose someone from within the community that they had taken over, believing that it might um, stave off rebellion, right? that it might put off uh, the, the hardest fighting against them if they had someone with the inside scoop. They had someone who knew what was going on, and that's what Herod is. He's someone who is of the community. He's of Judea, but he has been placed as a Roman pawn to be king of this place. And he's someone who embraces that. He and his father um, both probably considered themselves to have been saved in some way by the Roman Empire, definitely enriched by it. And historians will call him the peacekeeper between this place and Rome. Herod set up buildings and monuments all across Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. He thought of himself as someone who, after the people had experienced such destruction, used his power to build them up. But at what cost? At what cost? Because for him, his personal power and keeping Rome at bay were always going to be more important than anything else. And he decided he was willing to pay any price to keep that. And I've never committed quite the level of crimes against humanity that Herod has, but there is something in that that I understand when I look at it from my perspective, that Herod, right, is a person who many of us are at one point or another and who most people with power are at some point, which is a person who wields enormous power over the lives of others but thinks of himself as powerless and insecure and constantly needing to fight and grasp for more, right? What he has 
is power over lives. What he thinks of himself as having is obligation. And so he can convince himself that anything is justifiable in order to preserve his own sense of self. And while I've never um, done the things he has, I, I can identify with being insecure, being in my own resentment, feeling powerless. And when I feel like that, causing harms and doing pains to others in my life that I never would otherwise do and that I justify as being okay because they came out of my own fears. That I can get. But more than personally, what I see when I, when I look at Herod's perspective is the communities and the nations and the powers and the principalities of which I am a part. I see that the way they operated then is the same way they operate now. And I learn about the place I'm in and the logics of evil <laughs> and the logics of power. Historians differ on whether what has been called the slaughter of the innocents here actually occurred when Herod killed infants and toddlers because the wise people had not told him where Jesus could be found, and so he decided to take them all out, right? There is no cost too high to pay. Take them all out so that there will be no king of the Jews to uh, challenge me. They differ on, on whether this event actually happened, but it almost doesn't matter in the face of the fact that it's definitely the kind of thing that Herod would do. One thing we know is that Herod killed his own children when they challenged his power, his own oldest son, as well as putting in place policies that led to the deaths of many, many other kids. And we know it's the kind of thing that Herod would do because it's the kind of thing that we see Herod's doing now, today, in our own world and in our own life. When we look at the border of this country, what is there to see except the slaughter of innocents? seven children minimum who have died because of our immigration policy, such as it is, to separate people and cage them, and thousands more who have been traumatized forever. It is believable because it is true, because it's the kind of thing that power does all the time. It says, to keep the peace, we must do some horror. To keep the peace, we must do some enormously unpeaceful, unhuman thing. And when it says that, the way it's defining peace is simply as the minimum amount of change and the maximum amount of power, right? That what peace is, is passivity. What we must maintain at all costs is whatever has power now should have power tomorrow. And whatever it takes, is worth that. And we, as people of God, must know, as people of the Jesus and Mary and Joseph who flee to Egypt must know that that is no peace. <laughs> it is no peace if it requires death and destruction and hate and violence. We know this. That peace is a peace which is justice, which is holy, and which every human life is valued. As communities, we tell ourselves this story too often, that in order to get to safety or security, which we then name peace, we must do awful things. And it's just never, ever true. 
Martin Luther King said, peace is the outcome and peace is also the process, <laughs> right? That, that if the way you get to peace requires unpeace, it is no peace at all. And by peace, he clearly didn't mean um, soft lack of conflict. <laughs> he invited enormous conflict into his life in the pursuit of peace. He meant a deeper sense of what is at peace, what is in at integrity with the value of human life and dignity and community, that all would be in right relationship and justice and peace with one another. So what does this mean for Christmas, for it being Advent? We learn something from taking Herod's perspective about what the world is, about how hard it can be, about how awful it can be, about the powers that are at work in this world. But then what does that mean for us as Christians approaching tomorrow, approaching today? I've been meditating, praying a lot about this, and, I, and I've been praying with this quote from a, a writer I've been reading a lot lately, Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and she said, whenever I feel hopeless, I often discover that I am in relationship with things that are far away from me. When I focus my attention on what I can touch, on what I can shape and be shaped by, I experience connection, joy, and transcendence. What I can shape and be shaped by. What I can touch. And I, and I learned something in there about what it means to be a person in a world that feels painful and broken. And I learned something about what it means to be a Christian. Because what else is the incarnation? What else is God coming as a vulnerable baby who is subject to these same forces of pain and violence? What else is it except an invitation to touch, to shape and be shaped by whatever is closest to us? That God chooses in who God is to become Jesus, to say the way I am known to you is through living a human life as limited and as hard as yours, as strange and as muddy and messy as yours, with the same pains and oppressions and desperations, and I will touch and I will be touched by. I will be held in the arms of my mother and father as they flee. I will be weak and vulnerable. I will grow up in a place they do not know and I do not know. And I will return and I will make friends and I will eat bread and I will go to weddings and I will love and I will teach people how to be peaceful by being at peace with myself, by praying and telling the truth and being a force of love, of the peace which passeth understanding, of the peace that is not simply passivity, but the peace that is a force in our lives that changes us and changes everything, I will shape and be shaped by. And so I consider if I'm a follower of this Christ, of this Christ who made himself vulnerable to the same powers that seem to me to be too powerful to think about or too powerful to touch, what can I touch? What can I touch today? What is in front of me? Where is a place where there might be peace? Where is a place where there might be peace inside my soul? Where is a place where I might build peace with my roommates or my friends or my family? Where is a place in my neighborhood that has no peace that I might stand in or sit in or love at or hold hands near until there is more peace there tomorrow than there was yesterday?
there are things I can touch. I can shape and be shaped by, just like Jesus so long ago. And if I believe in the promise that he made at that incarnation and the promise that he makes every day through being God with us, Emmanuel, I believe that peace is possible and that peace is worth fighting for, worth a sustained struggle with my community and friends, that if I touch it and am shaped by it, will bring me joy and connection and not simply desperation. So we listen to the story and we hear the story and the challenge becomes to live the story, to tell the truth about what the world is and to believe that Christmas comes to us, that when Jesus was born, he came for all of the softest, sweetest stuff of the nativity. He came for the lambs and he came for the friends and he came for the shepherds and he came for the angels and he came for all of the places that Herod touched and touches now. There is no mess, there is no pain that is so deep that Jesus cannot touch it. And so there is no one that is so messed and so deep that we cannot touch it too. We are bearers of Christ with us, Christ who loves us. And when we pay attention to those things we can shape, we will find joy and connection there. So let's do that together. In Jesus' name, amen.